Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. If Putin had new plans for Ukraine, he did not appear to drop any hints today. The lead starts right now. In grand fashion, Putin used Russia's World War II victory commemoration parade to defend his invasion of Ukraine and slaughter of civilians, while Putin's forces are accused of dropping a bomb on a school, killing dozens. Economic turbulence, stocks slide, inflation fears intensify, and analysts say get ready for gas prices to skyrocket even further in the coming days. Plus, tourist site tragedy. New details on the three Americans who died at a popular vacation site in the Bahamas and the American woman flown to a Florida hospital. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start with our world lead in what was billed as a World War II Victory Day parade in Russia ending minutes ago with no new victories for Vladimir Putin to declare. The celebrations just wrapped up in Moscow with fireworks ending a day of events meant to honor the soldiers who helped defeat Nazi Germany in World War II. The West feared that Putin would use today to escalate his so-called special military operation in Ukraine to a a declared outright war. Instead, Putin spent his speech defending his decision to to invade his neighbor to the West and selling the war to his own people by falsely claiming the danger from Ukraine was growing every day before he ordered his troops to invade. The United States ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, responded to Putin's rhetoric and lies in an interview earlier today with CNN. President Putin has recognized he has no victory to celebrate. Uh, His efforts in Ukraine have not succeeded. He didn't announce a withdrawal. He didn't uh, announce any new new deals with the Ukrainians. So I suspect, and we've all assessed, that this could be a uh, long-term conflict uh, that can carry on for additional months. Behind the pomp and circumstances, the reality of what Putin is actually doing in Ukraine. This, for instance, is what is left of a school bombed by Russian aircraft on Saturday. It was being used as a shelter when it was hit. Around 60 people, 60, are thought to have been killed. And rescue efforts have been slowed by even more Russian shelling. And in southern Ukraine, nonstop shelling is destroying towns near the front line. But neither side seems to be making much progress as of now. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh visited with some of the Ukrainian civilians caught in the crossfire around the key port city of Kherson. Both nothing and everything has changed here. The front lines have barely moved on the road to the southern city of Kherson, the first Russia captured in the six weeks since we were last here. But instead, since then, almost everything in between has been torn up by shelling that literally does not stop. 
trapping people who physically cannot flee in the churn of a brutal stalemate. Here, in the village of Shevchenko, are two neighbours, both called Luba. We move to the yard as the shells get closer. Leonid still manages to get down to his wife's basement shelter. She's installed a plank on the way here to help him rest. They used to get dressed up to go to bed. It was so cold down here. But mention leaving and she chuckles. Nights spent here have focused her hatred. Across the road is Valentina, alone. Shells always seem to just miss her. Overwhelmed, yet hauntingly eloquent. It's not so much that life goes on here, but that it has nowhere else to go. These men selling cow's milk, although that's not what Leonid has been drinking. Hello to everyone, he says. Forty times a day and night, they shell. Barely a window is intact, shrapnel flying through the glass daily. Yesterday was Svetlana's turn, but she can't leave as she's waiting for her son to return from the war in Mariupol. Our children are all at war, she says. My son is a prisoner. If he comes back and if I have gone, it's like I've abandoned him. We wait, hope, worry. He is alive and we will live. On the road out of here, the shrapnel rises fiercely above the warm fields. In Ukraine, well, occupied, frankly, by Ukraine fighting a war in which it is ludicrously accused of being Nazis. In the east, you mentioned the airstrike on a school, but also concerns that Russia's making advances there too. But also Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky giving a powerful speech in which he said this wasn't really a battle between two armies, but two visions of the world. And declaring that while currently Ukraine has one victory day, soon it would have two to celebrate and that someone else, he meant Vladimir Putin, would have none. A message clearly of defiance here, but you can hear air raid sirens behind me. This is a country deeply on edge, and it has been for a matter of days, Jake, because they felt the Kremlin would try something today. So far, comparatively, not quiet, but no major uptick. People are concerned about what tonight might bring there, Jake. All right, Nick Payton Walsh in southern Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. To Russia now, and to CNN's Matthew Chance, who's in Moscow, where the Kremlin imposed strict laws 
regarding how Russia's presence in Ukraine is allowed to be described. Uh, Matthew, what did you make of Putin's speech? What stood out the most? Well, Jake, I mean, what, what stood out the most to me is the fact uh, that uh, this was a, a widely anticipated event uh, that many people speculated uh, was going to be the backdrop to a major announcement on what Vladimir Putin intended to do about his conflict, what he calls his special military operation inside Ukraine. Uh, there was speculation he could have made a formal declaration of war on Ukraine and mobilized uh, the country to on a more of a, a more of a war footing, which would give him more troops, more conscripts, more resources to plough into what is essentially a stuttering military campaign um, in that country. But you know, to answer your question, what was striking is he didn't do any of that. Uh, perhaps he had pause. Uh, he had reason. He felt to to hesitate. Perhaps he understood that not everyone in Russia is on board when it comes to more bloodshed, more warfare. Uh, more conflict in in, in neighbouring uh, Ukraine, um, and so that's something that I think was a, a takeaway from this. That he, he, he what it was a much more muted uh, Victory Day parade uh, than was expected. Jake, how did this year's parade compare to previous years? Well, as I say, more, more muted, uh, partly because of the lack of, of of pronouncements that were expected, as I just mentioned, but also the parade itself. Um, there was no air show, for instance. There was meant to be 77 aircraft flying in a sort of spectacular sort of display above Red Square. Um, I'd seen them rehearsing for the past couple of days, but the Kremlin said they had to cancel that aspect uh, of the parade because of the bad weather. It, it was very cloudy and very stormy. And I think they need you know, really good visibility to conduct, you know, kind of uh, precision flying in, in that way. But it, it, it did necessarily, it, it did, you know, of course, make it sort of less spectacular. Um, there were fewer troops than we normally see, fewer pieces of military equipment and a, a fewer variety of, of military equipment. But I mean, having said that, there were still 11,000 troops uh, across the cobbles marching in, in step with each other uh, of Red Square. And there were still something like 130 or more than that uh, different pieces of, of military equipment, including, of course, the, the jewel in the crown of Russia's military, its intercontinental ballistic missiles, its nuclear weapons, which it so often sort of reminds the West uh, that it, it possesses and would be prepared to use. Mm. Matthew Chance in Moscow for us. Thank you so much. Ukraine's railways are a crucial resource for not only evacuating civilians to safety, but also bringing in more supplies, weapons, humanitarian aid to the front lines. Now those railways have become one of Russia's key targets. But as CNN's Scott McLean reports for us, the railway workers are not running away from Russian strikes. Instead, they're choosing to stay in the line of fire to keep this essential resource up and running. The train from Kyiv takes about 25 minutes to reach the Irpin River. But this is the first time in almost two months that a passenger train has actually been able to roll across the bridge that spans it. One of two rail bridges here has just been rebuilt. The other is still impassable. The vital link between Kyiv and the bombed-out Irpin suburb was destroyed as Russian troops tried to advance toward the capital. Ukrainian Railways says it's lost access to 20% of its network, due either to Russian occupation or Russian bombs that have cut off access to long stretches of track. Orange-vested workers have been quietly repairing this span for weeks ever since the Russians finally retreated. It's effectively less than four weeks, 
which normally would take months and months of uh, civil engineering work, planning, projecting. So now, like uh, when the uh, situation is tough, uh, everyone works 24-7. The railway has been an indispensable tool in getting supplies in and people out of the most dangerous areas, but it has also been a huge target for Russian bombs. Repairing the damage is dangerous work. The railway says that well over 100 rail employees have died since the war began. Some of those have been fighting on the front lines, but many others have just been showing up for work. Every morning, uh, railway people are not asking themselves whether to go to work or not. This is their duty. That is precisely how Vadim Levitsky feels about the job he's had for 26 years. Despite war, he's kept showing up sometimes even repairing tracks amidst Russian shelling. He has a wife and daughter at home. While Russian tanks have moved east and south, Russian missiles are still falling across the country. Last week, six railway power substations were destroyed in one night taking out the ability to run electric trains in the West for two days. In early April, Ukrainian officials said a passenger train station in Kramatorsk was hit by a Russian missile killing 57, including five children and injuring more than 100. And last week, a rail and road bridge was hit in Dnipro, a critical rail link. What they're doing, they're trying to stop delivering of uh, weapons, delivering of humanitarian goods, uh, all support from West. From West. But whatever damage is done won't last long. The army of Ukrainian rail workers is even bigger than Ukraine's actual active-duty military. And despite the danger, they're here to stay. Staying put so Ukraine can keep moving. Scott McLean, CNN, in Ukraine. And our thanks to Scott McLean for that reporting. Coming up next, what President Biden is reportedly warning his own national security team about sharing intelligence with Ukraine as the White House reacts to Putin's big speech today. Plus, COVID was bad enough. Now new analysis shows just how much strain gun violence put on America's health system during the pandemic. Stay with us. Topping our politics lead, President Biden promising to put even more pressure on Vladimir Putin after the Russian leader defended his war in Ukraine at a Victory Day parade in Moscow, or at least attempted to defend it. The White House also slamming Putin's propaganda and lies today. CNN Chief White House Correspondent Caitlin Collins joins us live. Caitlin, what is the Biden administration saying about Putin's speech? Well, Jake, they think it was pretty muted. Obviously, they were watching it really closely to see if Putin made any new announcements or tried to claim victory or declare that he was mobilizing more forces. He did not make either of those. But they say basically that they believe he engaged in revisionist history in this speech today, Jake, by trying to claim it's Western aggression that is responsible for the invasion of Ukraine, for this ongoing war, instead of, of course, Russia, which has conducted this invasion that the White House has repeatedly called unprovoked and unjustified. But, Jake, just because uh, the, you did not see Putin today saying he's announcing any new forces are moving, it doesn't mean that the White House thinks that anything is changing on the ground in Ukraine. Instead, they do believe Putin is continuing down this path. And you heard the CIA director over the weekend saying that he believes right now Putin's mindset is that of he can't afford to lose this war. So they do expect it to continue just because he did not declare any new mobilization of forces today. There's been a lot of talk about uh, these leaks uh, about intelligence sharing 
between the United States and the Ukrainian government leading to the sinking of the Moskva, the, the killing of Russian generals. Uh, President Biden spoke about that with his national security team, an official tells you. Tell, tell us more. Yeah, he had three separate phone calls last week on this, Jake. And remember, last week, White House officials spent several days pushing back on the reporting that the U.S. was providing intelligence to Ukrainians that was helping them kill Russian officers, Russian generals. They were saying that they did not provide that information with the intent of that happening. But, Jake, of course, as you and I talked about last week, that doesn't mean that that didn't happen. But Jen Psaki just confirmed that President Biden was displeased by the leak of that intelligence, the kind of intelligence that the United States is sharing with Ukraine. She said that's mainly because President Biden believed it was an overstatement of the role that U.S. intelligence is playing and an understatement of the role that Ukrainian intelligence is playing. But it did prompt these several phone calls that President Biden had last week with Defense Secretary Austin, CIA Director Burns and the Director of National Intelligence of Real Haynes, telling them that he believed these leaks about what it was that the U.S. was sharing with Ukraine were counterproductive and that he believed the leaks needed to stop, Jake. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House for us. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Also in our politics lead today, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer today, turning the spotlight on the fight over abortion rights. Schumer is expected to hold what will largely be a procedural vote today on Senate legislation that would attempt to codify Roe versus Wade, ultimately would set up a Wednesday vote in the Senate that is widely expected to fail. Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Dingell of Michigan joins us now. So Congresswoman Majority Leader Schumer says, quote, this is no longer an abstract exercise but if this legislation does not have the votes to pass in the Senate, it has, it, it has them in the House, but not the Senate, isn't this a, a futile exercise? So first of all, it's already passed the House. It passed it last September. I think what it's doing, we have to remember this is still an opinion, that came, a draft that came out from the Supreme Court. But what you see is people... It's raised people's awareness that this isn't just a something that everybody's talking about in the abstract, but this could really happen in states across America. So you need to get senators on record about where they stand. So as people go to the polls in November, they know what they're voting for. I don't think it's going to be the only issue, Jake, but I do think that people suddenly are being reminded in a way that it was not there the last few months. Their votes have consequences. So, Congressman, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when Democrats held majorities in both the House and the Senate, a veto-proof majority in the Senate, and President Obama was in the White House. Th- this has been the, the Republican plan for decades now. Why didn't Democrats try to pass this back in 2009? Well, uh, I don't disagree with you in some ways. I'm not sure that the votes were there. We've um, This is always a hard issue for a lot of people. We should have codified it, uh, which is what we tried to do in the House last time. Uh, I'm, I don't want to think of ourselves as old, Jake. I prefer the word seasoned uh, to remember when that was there. But I also remember that there were a lot of men, quite frankly, and some women that were very squeamish about codifying Roe versus Wade. I think we've learned. We're here. We got to look forward. We can't look back. Uh, and I think we need to work towards making sure it's look, it's never an easy decision for anybody, but it's a woman's right to choose. It's between her, her doctor, her faith and her partner or spouse. Uh, if that's a person that's present in the life. And I don't think a lot of women ever thought that we would be looking at what we're looking at going back. 
For the record, I'm, I called myself old. I didn't say anything about, about you, just for the record. Um, so you, That's you, all right. You and I have been around the same period. You, you, uh, you represent Michigan. Uh, the governor of Michigan is out with a new op-ed in the New York Times today uh, highlighting her lawsuit, which would ask the Michigan Supreme Court to rule on whether the state's constitution protects the right of a girl or a woman to get an abortion. She writes, quote, I'm not going to sit on my hands waiting for Congress to do something, whether through legislation, executive action, ballot initiative, or initiative or civic, civic engagement, the answer to the overtly political ruling of a supposedly apolitical unelected body is to engage in every way and at every level. The answer is to get creative. Um, but just to be frank, isn't there a limit to what can be done uh, in terms of, of, of protecting uh, Roe v. Wade? I mean, at the end of the day, if the Supreme Court rules the way we think they will, it goes back to the states and then it's up to legislatures. So we're going to, okay, you just said, why didn't they do something before? We're the women that are here now. I'm in office now. I wasn't in office back then. She's in office now. By the way, she started that lawsuit before this leaked, I might add, trying to anticipate what was going to happen and how you could protect people at the states. And at our state level, we're also circulating petitions to try to get it on the ballot for the fall. There are a number of other strategies that, quite frankly, we all need to get in the same room and come to consensus on. But right now, we got to look at every potential possibility of how you protect a woman's right to choose. That's what this is about. The way the Supreme Court opinion, the draft was written, it would probably threaten a number of other things. But right now, where we are, where we're looking forward, we cannot go backwards. And each of us has a responsibility to do what we can to protect that woman's right to control her own body. House Speaker Pelosi used her weekly Dear Colleague letter to encourage uh, her fellow Democrats to keep fighting uh, to protect uh, a woman's a girl or a girl's right to, to have an abortion if she decides, quote, we know we must carry forward this fight in the weeks and months ahead. Our proud pro-choice House majority must continue this fight in the public arena so that the American people know that their rights are on the ballot this uh, November. The House has already voted uh, to codify Roe, as you note. What more can you do? legislatively? Well, we're going to have to see what the Senate does. And the Senate's not willing to, uh, you know, we did confirm a Supreme Court justice by waiving the filibuster, but some of those same people that voted to do that are unwilling to do that now. So what do we have to do? We have to talk about the issues that are at stake in November. And Jake, I want to be really clear. I don't think this is going to be the only issue that people are going to decide how they vote in November. But I think it's going to energize a lot of people, bring them off the sidelines and start to think about how it could impact many other things. I think by the time we get to November, the Democrats, President Biden, are going to be working to protect working families, to protect jobs, to protect protect people's individual liberties. Republicans have the agenda of the billionaires and Democrats have got to define what's at stake in November. And not, by the way, not forget that people have been hurting by going back to what happened to the supply chain and COVID and when President Trump was president. That's what's helped contribute to inflation and higher gas prices in the war in Ukraine. But we've got to show what we're doing to try to bring those down and protect our democracy. Democratic, De De Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Dingell of Michigan, thanks so much for your time. Good to see you. Coming up next, gas prices near a record just before summer travel kicks into high gear and predictions of prices hitting $4.50 a gallon. $4.50 a gallon in a matter of days. Stay with us. 
And we have some breaking news for you in our money lead. A few minutes ago, Wall Street ended another dismal day with across-the-board sell-offs, particularly in tech stocks. The Dow Industrials closed down by nearly 654 points. The broader S&P 500 and NASDAQ also closed sharply lower. CNN business anchor Richard Quest joins us live. Richard, I wish I could have you on to talk about good things, but... Some economists say a weaker stock market is better for the economy. So that's one way to look at it. If that's the case, how do we square that? And when we see 401ks and other investments drop along with stocks. You don't square it, Jake. You just realize and make the argument that, yes, in the larger, wider macro sense, a lower stock market means better valuations, therefore corporate profits, therefore a more solidly based economy which is great, 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road. But for people who are retiring now or who have got to look at what the market's doing for income next next month, next year, in three years' time, then it's a lot more difficult. So, yes, what is happening is a, an enormous shakeout of excess. It is painful to watch, and there is a seriousness now. We lost 4.5% on the Nasdaq today. There is a seriousness about these losses that wasn't there before because eventually they will have a wider economic effect. So there's there is disconnect, though, right, because oil prices dropped sharply today. But today's AAA gas survey shows regular unleaded gas is averages at four dollars and thirty two cents a gallon. That's a a penny short of the all time high set on March 11th. So how much higher is it going to go? We're seeing predictions of the average hitting 450 a gallon in the next couple of weeks. The contradiction is in the facts that you said. And the first is that, uh, Jake, the, 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 the oil price fell. But why did it fall? The oil price fell because China's in lockdown, therefore doesn't need as much. Shipping is in, uh, has got problems and therefore there is a supply issue. So we're seeing a fall in oil on the basis of a slowdown in economies, not because there's suddenly a vast increase. Also, OPEC said they'd produce more. I think that in terms of the price of gas, the economic price pressures are going to be simple. We're heading to the summer and the driving season. Demand goes up. There are problems, of course, with Russia. Therefore, prices stay high. Unless there's a reason, and I can't see one at the moment, that prices will stay where they are, give or take, and they could well go higher in the event Putin turns off the taps to Europe. Richard, the latest inflation numbers are going to come out Wednesday. Now, last month's report showed consumer prices going up at an annual rate of 8.5%. That's the worst since 1981, when I was 12 years old. If the number is down a bit in the new report, will that make a difference? No, because it's the, 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 the numbers are, they fluctuate somewhat. And we won't have seen the effect of the Fed's interest rates, the monetary lag, is six to nine months. So the interest rate increases that we're seeing now won't be felt until, say, early of next year, really seen properly until early of next year as it continues, which is why people talk of a recession in mid to late 23, not now. What I think you will see in the inflation numbers, even if they come off the top slightly, you'll see a hardening underneath of real inflation. Uh, wage inflation, the sort of thing that the Fed really will be concerned about as it decides on its half point increases likely in the next few meetings. Richard Quest, always good to see you. Thank you so much. Coming up next, the new numbers that underscore America's gun violence epidemic and its strain on the health care system. Stay with us. 
In our Health Lead, a new CDC study outlines how gun violence added to the already strained healthcare system during the first year of the COVID pandemic. Firearm-related incidents jumped 15% more than expected during that time, with more than 62,000 total flooding hospitals with gunshot victims, competing for beds in ICUs already overcrowded with COVID patients. Now, experts say that in addition to the rise in incidents, hospitals were further stressed because gunshot victims require immediate attention and extra resources to care for. And while the number of COVID hospitalizations are down from those days, U.S. hospitals are still in the grips of a gun violence epidemic nationwide. Let's discuss this with Dr. Megan Ranney, professor of emergency medicine at Brown University and co-founder of the American Foundation for Firearm Injury Reduction in Medicine. Dr. Ranney, good to see you. So gun violence as a public health issue is something you've been very passionate about for many years. So what's your reaction to what this study found about the first year of the pandemic? None of this is a surprise, Jake, to anybody who's been working in an emergency department or trauma intensive care unit over the past two years. This is also, of course, like many of the epidemics that we've seen worsen over COVID, not new. This public health epidemic has been going on for years. We have more than 100 people who die and well over 200 who are injured every day across the U.S. A portion of those folks make it to the doors of an emergency department but about half of them die before they even reach our doors. Those folks are gun suicides who are rarely captured in the numbers that are shared with the public. And Jake, I think the thing that's toughest for me and other folks who have been working on this issue for years is that it is preventable in the same way that COVID-19 is preventable by applying a basic public health approach. There are a multitude of things that can and should be done to decrease the number of injuries and deaths that our country continues to fail to take action on. One of those, it seems to me, would be at least a public education campaign about the importance of of trigger locks or gun safes so that children, adolescents can't have access to guns or or no one except for the gun owner. Um, uh, What else do you think? Well, that's exactly right. Actually, uh, in the last two years, gun deaths have surpassed motor vehicle crashes as the leading cause of death for American children across the United States. And remember, COVID is in those top 10 deaths as well. Safe storage is a key way to stop kids from getting access to their parents' or family members' guns. It also stops guns from getting stolen from cars. There are new studies out showing just how common it is for guns to be stolen. That research was done by every town. And then on top of it, it's things like extreme risk protection orders or red flag laws which make a big difference in terms of helping to stop suicides and mass shootings, and then training folks up in see something, say something, how to recognize signs of concern and how to help connect folks to resources to help stop shootings before they happen. Let's turn to the other deadly epidemic we've lived with for the past few years. The the Biden administration is now warning that the U.S. could see 100 million COVID infections. That's not hospitalizations or deaths, but infections this fall and winter. Right now, hospitalizations have ticked up in 23 states, mainly in the Northeast, where people are more likely to be vaccinated. So how concerned are you about this? So that's a great question. 100 million infections. The big unknown is how many of those do turn into severe infection, hospitalization and death. Right now here in Rhode Island, we have been seeing a surge in cases for well over a month. We've seen hospitalizations increase a little, but not a lot. If we can stay at this level of severity, this is something manageable. But There are two big buts. The first is, as you said, this is currently happening in the Northeast. When these new variants get to the South and to other areas where there is less vaccination and boosting, I worry that the impact on the hospitals is going to be far worse. The second big but is 
Congress has not yet voted to reappropriate money for tests, for personal protective equipment, for new vaccines. And if we get hit by a new variant this fall, if those infections are with something that is far more dangerous, we are going to be in for a lot of trouble. The free market is not set up to purchase vaccines on the scale that are needed to set up our country for this issue of potential national security threat. It really uh, depends a lot on Congress voting to reappropriate those funds. Just over a third of the country still is not fully vaccinated. The number of received booster shots is is even lower. All the evidence shows that the vaccines work uh, and are preventing hospitalizations and deaths, not necessarily infections or sickness, but hospitalizations and deaths. And the White House is warning that we could soon see a sizable wave. And President Biden is hosting a global COVID summit this week. What do you want to see get done in addition to more tests, more vaccines out there uh, in order to convince these people who have not gotten vaccinated or boosted to do so? So we here at Brown have actually been working with the Rockefeller Foundation and others to work community by community to help educate folks, to help dispel myths and misconceptions, and to help make vaccines easier to access. It's both around structural racism and factors of equity and around reaching rural folks, people who are lower income, people who may live in states where health policies are not as good. We have to address both those structural factors and have trusted messengers in the community, Jake, to help get people over their fears and ready to show up and get the vaccines in arms. And it's going to be so important come this fall. It's amazing. We're still having this conversation, though, I have to say. Dr. Megan Ranney, thank you so much. They booked villas at an all-inclusive Bahamas resort. Then they died. What officials are now saying about those American deaths and the woman moved to a Florida hospital. Stay with us. Also in our world lead today, a deadly mystery in paradise. Police and health investigators in the Bahamas are trying to figure out why three Americans, all staying at the same resort, are now dead. The bodies of two men and a woman were found in different locations at the Sandals Resort. A fourth American, a woman in fair condition, has been airlifted to a Miami area hospital. CNN's Carlos Suarez is there in Miami, uh, in the Miami area. First of all, authorities this afternoon said all four people were feeling ill and were seen by medics the night before three of them turned up dead? That's exactly right, Jake. According to Bahamian authorities, uh, they say that two of the couples were treated by doctors at different times the night before some of the bodies were found. We're told that samples have been taken from all four of the victims as well as the two villas that they were staying in and that these samples will be sent to a lab in Philadelphia as early as tonight. Now, according to the police commissioner, they're going to try to find the presence of a chemical in these samples, but he did not want to say exactly what type of chemical it is that they were looking for. On Friday morning, hotel staff, they found one of the bodies along with a woman inside of one villa. And while they were investigating that room, they sent police to a neighboring villa. And that's where they found two more bodies. Now, Bahamian authorities have been quite clear, adamant in that they say no one else at the property has reported feeling sick in the days since and that the area in question remains closed. Jake? And police say they do not suspect foul play as of now. Yeah, that's exactly right. So according to the police commissioner, there are no signs of trauma on any of the victims, but they did say that at least two of the bodies did have signs of, quote, convulsion. Now we're told that, that an autopsy is scheduled to, uh, scheduled to take place uh, on all of the bodies uh, today and tomorrow. So we might be able to get a little bit better uh, look at exactly what may have happened here. Jake, you're at the hospital where the American woman is being treated. What do we know 
about her. What do we know about the other victims? Yeah, so at last check, that one woman, the only one that survived, she remains here at a hospital in Miami and is listed in fair condition. Now, the names of the other victims were released late this afternoon. She was identified as 65-year-old Donis Chiarella. Her husband, Vincent, died. He was 64 years old, and we're told the two of them were visiting the Bahamas from Florida. The two others that died were identified as 68-year-old Michael Phillips and his wife, 65-year-old Robbie. We're told that the couple was from Tennessee. Now, in a statement to CNN late this afternoon, the family of Michael and Robbie, they gave us a statement that read in part, quote, our hearts are grieving and broken. Jake. So sad. Carlos Suarez in Miami area for us. Thank you so much. We are following breaking news in that jailbreak manhunt out of Alabama, of course. Uh, Authorities say they've tracked down a second getaway vehicle nowhere near Alabama. Plus, what new surveillance images reveal about the couple's run from the law? Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a Republican who rose to fame spreading the big lie in 2020 is now running for the governor of Pennsylvania by positioning himself as a savior in MAGA clothing. Plus, there are new developments in the nationwide manhunt for the Alabama corrections officer and capital murder suspect who disappeared together more than a week ago. Another getaway vehicle has been found. We'll tell you where. And leading this hour... A fireworks display marking the end of Victory Day in Russia, a day that honors Soviet soldiers who helped defeat Nazi Germany in World War II. Vladimir Putin using the opportunity to try to justify his unprovoked invasion of Ukraine and slaughter of innocent Ukrainians, falsely falsely claiming the danger there would have gone unchecked if Russia had not invaded. While there were celebrations in Russia and Ukraine, Russian troops were hammering Ukrainians. As CNN Sam Kiley reports for us now, as many as 60 civilians may have been killed after a Russian missile flattened a school over the weekend in Luhansk, where Ukrainians, civilians, were sheltering. One man's parade for the many. The many on parade for one man. And on the eve of Victory Day, authorities here say 60 people died in a Russian airstrike. The victory over German Nazism once united the people of Russia and Ukraine. Not anymore. This is what Putin's modern campaign to denazify Ukraine looked like on the eve of that victory day in the east of the country. From Mariupol to Mikhailiv, Kherson to Kramatorsk. Russians' war in the name of saving Russian-speaking people in Ukraine has focused most violence in the east, where most people speak Russian. On victory day, Ukrainian towns under Russian control held muted memorials to a past war while the present rages on. This man survived the Bilhariva airstrike and his response to Putin's parade? A sarcastic, let them celebrate, we would celebrate too. Imagine what they bombed, an ordinary village with only pensioners and children. They died in a Russian thrust into their village during an operation to throw a military bridge across the Donetsk River, shown here in this satellite image. The move is intended to cut this supply route to Russian-speaking Ukrainian towns now under bombardment. Ukrainian forces are counter-attacking, but Russian artillery is already hitting the road and the oil refinery next to it. 
with the killing of at least 60 people, civilians cowering in a school not far from here. It's clear that the Russians are continuing with their campaign to obliterate civilian life. But this is also a sign that they're pursuing traditional tactics, trying to break the infrastructure that could support the Ukrainian war effort. Putin's allegations of Nazism in Ukraine are turned back on the Russian leader by survivors of the real war against Hitler's ideology. She says, I think victory will be ours, only ours. If I were younger, I would have ripped this thug's throat out with my teeth. The president is insisting Ukraine's victory is certain. The one who is repeating the horrific crimes of Hitler's regime today, following Nazi philosophy, copying everything they did, he is doomed. But it will be a long, hard fight to turn the lessons of history into a modern-day Ukraine victory in Europe. Now, Jake, uh, it's quite telling, really, the muted uh, celebrations in those towns under Russian control, relatively uh, light turnout, if you like, for the parade itself in Moscow. No air show in Moscow, no air show in Rostov on Don. That's being interpreted here as a possibility that maybe Vladimir Putin doesn't have planes to spare for demonstrations because they're all tied up in the battle here in Ukraine. Jake? Sam Kiley reporting live for us from Kamatorsk, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Let's bring in former U.S. ambassador to NATO during the Obama administration, Evo Dalder. Ambassador Dalder, thanks for joining us. So the context of this muted display, relatively, is that U.S. and Western officials had been warning that today Putin would have a, a statement of major escalation, a declaration, something big. But today largely came and went with no change in public posture from Russia and a rather muted display compared to previous years. So what do you think happened? You know, I think Putin may well have blinked here. Uh, uh, clearly, uh, in the few weeks uh, in, in the run-up uh, to this Victory Day parade, uh, the West has consistently increased its capabilities in support of Ukraine. Uh, the rhetoric has become robuster. The sanctions have become deeper and, and more severe. Uh, and there was this expectation that Putin would uh, escalate. And instead, I think he justified basically uh, the war in, in the Donbass, uh, saying that uh, there was a preemptive strike coming from Ukraine uh, on the Donbass and on Crimea, and he had to act, uh, really announcing pretty limited war aims, nothing like the full-scale mobilization, let alone the declaration of war that people uh, were expecting. And my sense is that Putin is seeing that uh, he's being, uh, he's facing some really severe resistance, not only from the Ukrainians, but also from a West that is determined to make sure, as the G7 put it yesterday, uh, that Russia does not win uh, in Ukraine. So Putin, as you know, continues to paint the United States and NATO and Ukraine as the aggressors here, which of course is not true, but it does sound as though Putin is still trying to sell this war to the Russian people. Um, is there skepticism? Is there evidence of skepticism among the, Rus the Russian people? There's not uh, a lot of evidence of that yet, but there is, of course, the reality that the costs of this war are very, very significant. Uh, if the uh, 15 to 20,000 uh, uh, Russian soldiers killed uh, number is correct, and, and there's no reason to doubt the British intelligence sources, uh, that's more than the number of Soviet soldiers died in, in uh Afghanistan and 10 years of war, and that's just in 10 weeks. And so he needs to be worried that perhaps, uh, uh, particularly in the places where the uh, Russian soldiers are coming from, the villages 
uh, in uh, outside of the major major metropolitan centers where his support should be highest, that that may turn against him. So he needs to justify the war, and he's using both World War II uh, and the sacrifice, the 27 million Soviet people who died in that war, uh, as as one way to do it, and to say, listen, this is not just Ukraine we're facing. We're facing the the bad, strong uh, uh, West, and that's why we're suffering the casualties that we are. Hmm. Uh, that's why he's selling for as it is. But you know, clearly, uh, he is he's he's worried about uh, uh, the support that he's having at home, and and he's worried about not achieving uh, some of the uh, goals he had set out uh, abroad. The U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, uh, spoke with our CNN's Kylie Atwood this morning. Uh, she made it sound as though Russia is, simply put, losing the war. Take a listen. President Putin has recognized he has no victory to celebrate. Uh, his efforts in Ukraine have not succeeded. He was not able to go into Ukraine and bring them to their knees in a few days and have them surrender. He gave up on taking Kiev. Still, she said it does not appear that Putin is anywhere close to ending the war. How do you anticipate this is going to play out? So I think uh, we're in for a, a long, uh, hard, very hard slog uh, uh, with uh, continued fighting in the Donbass and in the southeast, uh, where the Russian forces now are concentrated. Uh, and uh, Western equipment continue to help uh, the Ukrainians push back. Uh, on the Russians. We saw some major gains by the Ukrainians in the north, in Kharkiv, uh, the second largest city in Ukraine that is now outside of artillery range from the Russians and the Russians destroying bridges on the way out, uh, indicating that they had no intent on coming back. Um, but, you know, the Russians have significant military capability. They will continue to push. Uh, and so what I see is the Russians not winning uh, but it is going to take a while before the Ukrainians can claim that they have achieved what they need to achieve, which is to push the Russians at least back to where they were on February 24th, if not further. And it's going to take a long time. We, however, have indicated uh, rightly in my mind that we will be there to help the Ukrainians to ultimately achieve that goal. We're learning today that President Biden has told his top national security officials that the leaks about U.S. intelligence sharing with Ukraine aren't helpful. They were overstated. And needs to stop. This, of course, comes after reports that the, the U.S. and intelligence played a role in the sinking of Russia's Moskva warship and the killing of Russian generals. A New York Times opinion columnist uh, Thomas Friedman wrote, quote, the staggering takeaway from these leaks is that they suggest we are no longer in an indirect war with Russia, but rather we are edging toward a direct war. And no one has prepared the American people or Congress for that. Do you agree? Uh, yeah, no, I don't agree that we are moving toward a direct confrontation. I think the president has uh, laid a very, very clear line between direct military uh, uh, fighting between U.S. and NATO forces on the one hand and Russia on the other and support for Ukraine. And that support is going to be material in terms of the equipment, the, the tanks and the artillery and uh, and everything else that we're uh, sending in. But it's also going to be information and intelligence. And uh, that's to be expected. I think the president is right to be upset about the the kinds of things that are being leaked in the last few uh, few days. Uh, we don't want to go into these kinds of details. It's also not clear that it's in fact even true. Uh, the intelligence that the Ukrainians have is quite significant. Uh, but we need to be very clear that we don't, we're not in, uh, in this to have a direct confrontation with Russia and we need to maintain that, uh, that line. 
I also would note that given what uh, uh, Putin said in the Victory Day Parade, he seems to be well aware that he doesn't want a confrontation with the United States and NATO either. Uh, and so uh, I think that the risks of escalation, always big, always strong, uh, are a little less today than they were uh, just a few days ago. Former U.S. Ambassador to NATO, Ivo Dalder, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. The horrors of war. CNN talks to a Ukrainian woman who was raped by Russian soldiers and became the target of vicious rumors in her own village. Then a breaking update, a second getaway vehicle has been located in the search for that missing Alabama corrections officer and inmate. That's ahead. Back in our world lead, Ukrainian officials say that reports of rape have exploded since Russian troops first invaded the country nearly three months ago. And now as CNN's Sarah Seidner reports for us, prosecutors are changing their rape investigation protocols to ensure that victims are properly protected and that perpetrators can be charged with war crimes. In this pine forest, the remnants of a nasty battle caught in the crossfire, a quiet farming village in Ukraine's Brovary district. Here, Russian soldiers are accused of doing more than destroying homes. Two women say they raped them too. What that son of a bitch did to me was horrible. He forced me to. I can't talk about it. I'm ashamed and scared. She shows us where Russian soldiers fired a shot in her home in March. She says she heard them say their names. One was Oleg, the other Danya. Danya started to pull me by the hood. I told him it's painful. He said, come with me. She says they dragged her down the street to her neighbor's small farmhouse. There, a grandmother, her daughter, her daughter's husband, and her grandson were all inside sleeping when the soldiers arrived. What happened when the soldiers showed up at your house? I hear them banging at the door, so hard that everything around was shaking, even the windows. She says she stayed in the house. Her son-in-law went outside with the soldiers and the neighbor. There was a short conversation. Then there was a sound, like a bang, shot like a firework. My body was shaking. They killed him, she says. They took his wife. While the Russian soldiers marched the two to this empty house, she says she heard them talking. They were calling each other by name, saying, look who we are going to fuck. She says she tried to reason with the soldier who had a hold of her. Danya told me he was 19. I told him I was 41. My younger son is the same age as you. I asked him if he has a girlfriend. He said yes. She's 17, but I haven't had sex with her. Then why are you doing this to me? He answered, because he hadn't seen a woman in two weeks. She says the soldier promised not to kill her, but when she escaped, she had to risk her life just to get home because this village was under heavy bombardment. There were bullets flying around from the forest. I thought, oh my God, someone will see me and kill me. The two women survived the assaults, but then became the target of nasty gossip by other neighbors who saw Russian soldiers roaming around one of their homes. Grandmother Valentina explained why, saying her traumatized daughter went to the Russian commander, demanding help burying her husband. You guys came at night and killed him. You have to help us bury him. We're standing on the grave? She takes us to her backyard and points to two patches of dirt. Her daughter couldn't bear the pain and left the country. Her neighbor decided to stay and fight back. 
Did they see it? Did they see it? They didn't see it. I can accuse some of them too. Do you feel like you've been punished twice? Once by the rape and then a second time by the rumors in the village? Yes, it's really true. But God can see everything. Since the war began, the Ombudsman for Human Rights of Ukraine says reports of rape on a new hotline have exploded. There are more than 700 calls since the 1st of April. The United Nations says rape is often used as a weapon of war. But the Ombudsman says tracking down evidence and identifying perpetrators of any war crime is especially daunting. It sounds to me like many of these war crimes will go unpunished. How do you not lose your mind listening to these horrific stories of rape? It's very difficult. You know, someone has to do it for our fighters, risking their lives on the front lines. They are in danger every minute. This is my own front line. One of Ukraine's top prosecutors is investigating this case and told us the details described by these women behind this gate very clearly constitute war crimes. This survivor says she intends to help them prove it. What should happen to these soldiers? I want them to be punished by the court. The judges must decide what to do with them, shoot them, kill them, tear them apart. The bastards. And you can hear her anger there. We should mention that the lead prosecutor in this case says this particular case and what happened in that village has caused them to change their protocols when it comes to rape survivors. The prosecutor says basically what they are going to do now is try to figure out just exactly how to protect and maybe remove people to a safe place so that they don't have to deal with he called bullying, even if it's coming from their own communities, Jake. Sarah Seidner reporting live for us from Kiev. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. In our politics lead, just eight days remain before voters in the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania go to the polls to cast their ballots in the Commonwealth's primary races, one for an open U.S. Senate seat and the other, potentially far more consequential, a wide open and crowded race for governor. As CNN's Kyung La reports for us now, the ultimate winner of the Republican field could end up impacting the next presidential election. Just days left before the gubernatorial primary in the battleground of Pennsylvania. We arrive at Republican State Senator Doug Mastriano's campaign rally. Open to the public, the campaign had said CNN could come. To this event at an indoor hotel courtyard next to the pool. But at check-in, a volunteer says journalists are not welcome. Do you know why media isn't being allowed in? No, I don't. We're here because Mastriano is one of the leading contenders for the Republican nomination for governor. He's avoided nearly all independent press. The voters rely on reporters to understand their candidates. After the Mastriano campaign said that media wasn't allowed at their political rally, we rented a room from the hotel who gave us permission to record the event from here. With a CNN producer registered as a guest in the crowd and us in a balcony, Mastriano took the stage, railing against abortion rights, COVID restrictions, and what he claims is Marxist ideology in public schools. Wow, any God-fearing, flag-waving, patriotic Americans in the house here? 
Mastriano shot to national prominence in 2020, baselessly raising doubts about Pennsylvania's presidential election results. Donald Trump lost here by more than 80,000 votes. But Mastriano has ignored the truth, instead banging the bogus drumbeat of election lies as a state senator. We are here today to try to find out what the heck happened in the election. As a gubernatorial candidate, his rally opened with a prayer mentioning fraud without offering any evidence. We ask God, as the ballots go forth, Lord God, that you remove every fraudulent ballot, Lord God. The campaign fuses politics with Christianity framing Mastriano as a Commonwealth savior. God used you to call us. Mastriano is one of nine candidates vying for the Republican nomination, a hotly contested race that could impact the next presidential election. The next governor has the power to appoint the top elections official in the Commonwealth. I am a Republican candidate for governor. The field includes former U.S. Attorney Bill McSwain, to state Senate President Jake Corman. But it's Mastriano who Democrats believe and hope they'll face in November. Mastriano wins. It's a win for what Donald Trump stands for. This statewide ad is paid for by Shapiro for Pennsylvania. Our next governor in Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro. Josh Shapiro is the likely Democratic nominee for governor and current state attorney general. Gambling that by boosting a more right-wing candidate in a swing state, Democrats come out on top this November. They are extremists. They are out of touch with where I know Pennsylvanians to be. At an abortion rights rally, Shapiro hammered away at Republicans and Mastriano. Has the general already started then for you? I think it's pretty clear he's going to be their nominee. We think it's important that the people of Pennsylvania know that there's a clear contrast between he and I. Our democracy was birthed just a few blocks away here in Philadelphia. We have a unique responsibility as Pennsylvanians to defend it. Alan, these final days, both Democrat and Republican have been talking about abortion. Shapiro leaning into protecting access, hoping to energize women's suburban voters. Mastriano pledging that he will sign a so-called heartbeat bill if he is elected governor. The primary, Jake, is one week from tomorrow. Jake. All right. Kung Law reporting live from Pittsburgh. Thanks so much. Let's discuss with my panel. Maria Cardona, I want to start. With your reaction to Kyung's report from Pennsylvania, do you think it's possible that, that Mastriano could actually get the nomination? He does seem to be embracing the Trump legacy more than any of the other voters. And, but he's focusing on, uh, it seems to me, uh, uh, this, this false vote fraud thing as opposed to the economy, which really is something Pennsylvanians, I think, personally are more affected by. Well, this is the problem that Republicans are having, I think, all over the country with their primaries and especially primaries where Trump is a player and a huge shadow, which is a lot of them, that they have to go so extreme to the right to support the big lie, to talk about how 2020 was a fraudulent election in order to grab uh, the base of the Republican Party, which still genuflects at the altar of Trump. And I think that is going to be a huge problem for them. It's how they need to win the primary, but it's going to put them in a huge danger zone in order to win the general election. And I think Josh Shapiro has it exactly right. 
to make this about a contrast. I don't believe the majority of Pennsylvania voters are extremists. The way that Mastriano is running is as an extremist candidate. And by the way, I have to give kudos to Kion Law and her team for making sure that they got in there to be able to cover this. And the fact that Mastriano's campaign did not want press there should be a red flag and a huge alert for every Pennsylvania who wants their governor and, and, the, and everyone who runs mm-hmm. uh, the governorship to be held accountable. Because, as you know, that's what the press does. That focuses and underscores how extreme a candidate Mastriano is going to be. So, Kristen Soltis-Anderson, uh, the governor's race could decide uh, so many things in Pennsylvania, the issue of abortion rights in the Commonwealth. Do you think uh, the Shapiro uh, pro-choice position... Uh, will be more popular or or less popular than the Mastriano pro-life position if one were to uh, try to figure out which one will help either candidate uh, should should they get the nominations. In this case, as with many races across the country, I think it's going to come down to not candidates saying that the other person is extremist, but what do these candidates actually say? It's one thing to you know run an ad saying my opponent is an extremist. It's another for that person to come out with a position that's very tough. Um, in Pennsylvania, for instance, this is a different candidate, Connor Lamb, um, but a Democrat who's positioned himself as relatively moderate, sort of being unable to go on the record and say where, if at all, he would support any restrictions on abortion. And so in the same way that for any Republicans who are out there saying, I want a complete and total ban on abortions or I want a ban on abortions at six weeks, where that is outside of where the mainstream of public opinion is, so too are things that say, I don't believe there should be any restrictions on abortion um, at all. And I, I think where candidates actually fall on that spectrum will determine a little bit of the extent to which voters factor that into their decision making. Yeah, Connor Lamb running in the in the Democratic primary for right, the Senate, Senate seat there. Uh, Maria, the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell told USA Today over the weekend that a national ban on abortion is a possible future step, saying, quote, if the leaked opinion became the final opinion, legislative bodies, not only at the state level, but at the federal level, certainly could legislate in that area. And if this were the final decision, that was the point that it should be resolved one way or another in the legislative process. So, yeah, it's possible. It would depend on where the votes were. Um, do you think that that is actually likely to happen if Republicans win the House and Senate this November? Yes, I do, because Mitch McConnell said it. And, you know, Jake, I think Democrats have learned our lesson. And frankly, other people who have said that Democrats are kind of hair on fire for this issue of thinking that Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned. Well, guess what? It's about to be overturned. So I think that we should absolutely be expecting if the Republicans take over the Senate for this to be absolutely an option that is very real, that is not something that Democrats are making up to try to make people scared or nervous. No, it came out of Mitch McConnell's uh, mouth. And you also see so many of these candidates that the ones that we're talking about today in Pennsylvania, they are talking about an outright ban on abortion again in order to uh, in order to gather the support of the right wing in the Republican Party but I also think that they believe it they were in a debate the ones in Pennsylvania for governor they were in a debate recently and they all tried to outright wing each other saying how much they would absolutely ban and criminalize abortion and so yes I think it is a danger and it is absolutely something that Democrats are going to be able to mobilize around and Kristen, we politically, we already have an idea of what Democrats will do with comments like McConnell's. Take a look at this digital ad for the New Hampshire Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan, who's running for re-election, highlighting uh, those comments. 
Three men, one agenda, fulfilling Mitch McConnell's decades-long crusade to criminalize abortion. With Roe v. Wade on the verge of being overturned, these three men and their one agenda mean a woman's fundamental rights, our freedoms, hang in the balance. How do you think the issue works in New Hampshire? I mean, New Hampshire is a swing state, and so it's going to be one where things are pretty evenly divided, where it's, I'm certain, not an issue that the Republican candidate would put front and center. They've got issues like the economy that I'm sure they would rather be talking about. At the same time, as you noted, this is a digital ad. And so the thing that is beneficial about a digital ad is if you are Maggie Hassan, you can target that ad at folks who are pro-choice donors across the country to raise a lot of money. The question is, when do you put your money where your mouth is and put that kind of an ad on the airwaves where a lot more of the swing voters will see it? Last week, the Hassan campaign went up on air with an ad that was trying to put distance between Senator Hassan and uh, President Biden over things like gas taxes and these economic sort of kitchen table issues. So whether Democrats decide they want to, you know, elevate this and put this on the airwaves, they, they very well may. But that is still an open question. But do you, do you really do you think that we're not in an era where digital ads can actually be more effective than TV ads? I mean, I, there's it's not about effectiveness. It's about who you can target them and who is seeing them. And I think your average swing voter who is probably not super tuned into political news, consuming it with the, the voraciousness that folks like you and I are, Jake and Maria. Uh, you know, the, I, I think that when it comes to digital ads, they can have a ton of power, absolutely. But I think it also tells us a lot about the strategic choices that someone makes when they choose to put something on the airwaves where it is much more broadly seen versus when they choose to put something online where they can be much more precise about to whom they've targeted. All right, Kristen and Maria, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Coming up, we heard stories about children during their online classes from fast food parking lots because they didn't have access to Wi-Fi. And now new numbers show which students suffered the most from remote learning during COVID. Stay with us. In our health lead, wow, who could have predicted the devastating impact remote learning had on the children who could least afford that problem. New research shows students who learned remotely during the pandemic likely suffered large losses in achievement compared with those who continued with in-person learning, the effect of which has widened the achievement gap for kids in low-income areas. This is all according to a new study from multiple organizations, including Harvard University's Center for Education Policy Research that analyzed data from over 2 million students in 49 states. And joining us now is one of the authors of this report, Thomas Kane. He's a professor of education and economics at Harvard's Graduate School of education. Professor, thanks for joining us. How large is this likely achievement gap between kids who were forced into remote learning and those who were not? How much have these students been set back? So we estimate that in high poverty schools, students lost about half of a year of learning if their schools were remote for half or more of the year last year. And that's a, that's a large effect. I mean, there have been very, very few educational interventions that have ever been shown to have an impact that large. And so uh, we need to be preparing over the next couple of years some aggressive actions to try to close these gaps. An achievement gap between kids in low income versus high income areas, that's not new. But you found that the gaps in math achievement did not widen in states such as Texas or Florida that generally kept classroom learning in person as much as they could. Explain what your research shows in this part. So... Um, I think what we did, we learned just how important in-person schooling is, that that um, where schools remained open, uh, 
the the gaps, you know, everybody lost a little bit because remember, most schools were out in the spring of 2020, but the gaps did not widen. And yet in places where um, kids went home, schools are much more unequal than schools. I mean, homes are much more unequal than schools are. And so gaps widened in, in those areas that shifted to remote instruction. So like it was it was like we we got to to see just the importance of public schools as a part of our social infrastructure. We we turned the switch off and gaps widened. We turned we kept the the lights on and gaps didn't widen. So it, it was um, it it, uh, it it should be concerning us all that achievement gaps widened during this period, and that we got to we've got a lot of work uh, to do to make sure that these gaps don't become permanent. There were people in the media and in public life sounding the alarm on this uh, after it became clear that remote learning was not really achieving anything, um, for especially for younger kids. Um, and one of the issues was those who questioned remote learning would often face criticism such as this since-deleted tweet I'm going to bring up from a Chicago Teachers Union chapter. This is from December 2020. It said, quote, the push to reopen schools is rooted in sexism, racism, and misogyny. What's, what's your reaction to that? Well, you know, I, I do think we, we all ought to look back to last year. There was a lot of legitimate uncertainty about, like, what the public health uh, benefits would be to uh, staying remote and, and canceling in-person classes. But what, what we've learned, and, and by the way, public health researchers are going to continue to argue over that uh, over the next couple of years on just like what were the public health benefits to um, remote versus in-person schooling. But whatever the outcome of that debate, we know that the costs for kids were large uh, and uh, and that, you know, we need to be embracing that and recognizing uh, what what we need to do to try to close these gaps. And I imagine there are a lot of issues, uh, one of them being some families can afford to have a parent who's at home, some families cannot, some families right. only, only have one parent at home. Um, then in addition, millions of American students and households don't have internet. Uh, many were forced to, to go to a, a fast food parking lot and log on or, or, or ask teachers to hand deliver assignments uh, while schools were still doing um, remote learning. What are the long-term effects on these kids? Well, we estimate that if these losses become permanent, um, that if and you were in a high poverty school that was remote um, for the majority of last year, the impact on earnings will be about five percent, uh, of like a five percent decline on earnings the rest of your career. Now, that may not sound huge, but when you spread it across fifty million students in K twelve education. Um, it's about $2 trillion a year. Uh, so, um, I mean, $2 trillion in foregone earnings over the, over not per year, but over the course of their lifetime, mm-hmm. um, lost earnings. Is it too late? Are there some solutions that schools should undertake to, to try to help these kids who have been so negatively impacted? So, so school districts, as, you, as I'm sure you know, have received a lot of federal aid. And they have 30 more months uh, to spend those those federal dollars. And so our hope is districts will start to develop plans now that are 
that have a hope of, of closing these gaps. Um, my concern is that many districts' plans, from what I've seen so far, are just not commensurate with the magnitude of their losses. They're planning interventions for 10 or 15% of their students when a much larger percent percent of students could use the help. And we don't have time uh, for a year from now to find out that, that districts catch up plans were undersized. Districts need to be looking at their plans now. Parents need to be asking, okay, can you provide me a rationale for why our district's plans are big enough to close these gaps and um, and show me the research on the effects of these different interventions our district is trying, and let's make sure that they add up. It, it's a it's a it's a math problem uh, um, that that school districts need to be doing right now to to say like is the size of our mm -hmm. um, recovery effort commensurate with the size of our students' losses. Yeah. Professor Thomas Kane, thank you so much for your research and for coming here today. Appreciate it. Breaking news on the nationwide manhunt for the missing Alabama corrections officer and the inmate she's believed to be with who may have been spotted for the first time since their escape. Stay with us. Breaking news in our national lead, the fugitive who escaped in Alabama jail more than a week ago may have been spotted. Investigators just released these photos of what they believe is a new vehicle used by the former corrections officer and the inmate who disappeared together, pictured at a car wash in Indiana. Police believe the man next to the truck is escaped inmate Casey White. CNN's Nadia Romero is in Florence, Alabama for us. Nadia, what are investigators saying about this new vehicle? Yeah, Jim, this, or Jake, excuse me, this gives us a good idea of the next vehicle they were in. So remember, they left the courthouse here, and we found their next car, a Ford um, Edge, that was found in Williamson, Tennessee, about two hours north, and then two hours north of there is Evansville, Indiana, and that's where they found this blue Ford F-150. And in those photos, you can see that vehicle. You can also see Casey White, and U.S. Marshals tell us they know that's him. Uh, there are three big identifiers for Casey White. It's his size. He's six foot nine, some 300 pounds, but then also he has some very recognizable tattoos on his right arm. And so that's going to help identify him at every turn. Uh, so this gives us an idea of exactly where they were. We knew that they left a car in Williamson, Tennessee, and that the U.S. Marshals put a triangle around that location saying that they wouldn't come back south down to Alabama, but they were likely heading north. And now we have confirmation that they did head north to this car wash. Uh, it was spotted uh, days ago, but it was Sunday night that uh, the U.S. Marshals and other investigators were able to put all of the pieces together to let them know that this was the vehicle that Vicki White and Casey White were in, the escaped inmate and the former corrections officer. We also know that Vicki White is facing a new charge, that she used a fake ID to purchase at least one vehicle here. They say that she was using other aliases as well. Jake? How bizarre that they went to a car wash. Um, what more are you learning uh, about the inmate, Casey White? Yeah, we know that he has a long list of convictions, Jake, dating back to 2010 when he had a domestic violence charge for beating his own brother in the head with the handle of an axe sledgehammer. So that landed him in Alabama prison back then. Then he went on a crime spree in 2015, Jake, and it was carjacking, a police chase. He was convicted on attempted murder and kidnapping. We interviewed one of his victims who said he was just terrified knowing that he was out on the run. He believes that everyone that comes in contact with Casey White is in danger. 
All right. Nadia Romero reporting live for us from Florence, Alabama. Thanks so much. Fire season is just starting and one state is already fighting its second largest wildfire in history. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series, New Mexico is now battling its second largest wildfire in history. The massive fire is a combination of two smaller fires burning in the northern part of the state. The flames are now covering close to 200,000 acres. CNN's Lucy Kafanov is in New Mexico for us, just a few miles from the fire. Lucy, how contained is it right now? Well, Jake, just 43% contained as of this morning, but that can change in a heartbeat because of these incredibly strong winds. You can see them blowing here. You can see that massive plume of smoke behind me. That wasn't here just four hours ago. These winds moving at 30 miles an hour, gusts of up to 60 miles an hour. I can tell you that it's frankly difficult to just stand here. These high winds, high temperatures, low humidity, really complicating firefighting efforts. The crews have not been able to get air support. They haven't been able to use, for example, those helicopters that can drop water. That slowed down the firefighting efforts. This is not only the second largest fire in New Mexico history, but the largest one burning in the U.S. right now. It's roughly the size of New York City. Of course, it's just a fraction, a minuscule fraction of the population, uh, but it doesn't make the risk any less dangerous. We know that thousands of homes, thousands of people are affected. Uh, I spoke to one fire official earlier today who said that there's about 12,000 homes who have been under mandatory evacuation, but we don't know how many people live in those homes, how many of them are vacation properties, and frankly, how many folks are actually heeding the important, incredibly important warnings to get out of Dodge. Um, I could also tell you that officials are expecting things to potentially get worse. They're expecting a, quote, significant increase in the fire risk. And again, the unpredictable nature of these winds make it very difficult for the firefighters to battle them, especially without those critical air resources. Jake. All right. Lucy Kafanov reporting for us live from New Mexico. Thanks so much. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. You can download our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.